Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow, with your host, Linda Nazareth. Well, hello, and thanks for joining us today. Now, we've talked a lot on this podcast about pandemic stresses and the new issues we've had to deal with over the past year, but there's one issue that doesn't seem to go away, whatever else is happening in the world, and that's the lack of time we have to get everything we want to get done, done. It was an issue long before any of us had heard of COVID-19, and I have no doubt it's going to be an issue once we all return to normal or post-pandemic life. Because when it comes to work especially, we all have these lofty goals of what we're going to accomplish, and at the end of the day, we often find we're disappointed because we did not get done what we had intended to do. So how can we get control of our time? And is there a way to set realistic goals as to what we're going to do? Well, I thought it was a topic that we really should explore right now. I was really glad to find the guest we have today. Her name is Sabina Nawaz, and she's a global CEO coach, as well as a keynote speaker and a writer. I was intrigued by a piece she wrote for the Harvard Business Review on being realistic about your time and getting away from something she calls magical thinking. I really thought it was a topic that would resonate with a lot of our audience. So I reached out to her and I'm really happy that she agreed to speak with us today. She has some really valuable views, really valuable tips on getting more out of the time you do have. It's a really interesting discussion. Please stay with us. Now, is there a way to be more realistic about the time you have and ultimately accomplish more? Our guest today says there are some strategies you can employ. Sabina Nawaz is a global CEO coach, and she's also a keynote speaker and writer. She has clients in 26 countries. She joins us now from Vancouver. Hi, Sabina. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Linda, for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you about this topic that is near and dear to pretty much every single person's heart. Every single person. But you know what? Before I even get to that, because this is a work podcast, I always like to ask people how they ended up doing what they're doing, because it doesn't seem like a lot of people grow up and say, you know, in however many years I'm going to be counseling CEOs. How did you get here? You know, and that's such a common story, isn't it? That we rarely end up on a path that we thought we were going to end up in or that we were even formally trained from. I got here being thrown off the deep end of the pool. My education, undergraduate and graduate is in computer science, electronics, computer systems, engineering. So, of course, it's a really typical career path to then uh, counsel and coach CEOs, isn't it? Uh, (laughs) Actually, I started my career in software development at Microsoft and then made a switch into leadership and executive development while at the company. And so when I say getting thrown off the deep end of the pool, I was in charge of that as soon as I made the switch from the product groups into HR and found myself in meetings with Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, trying to figure out the leadership development and executive development and succession planning strategies for the company without having had a minute or formal education on the topic. And so scrambling on the back end, trying to get certifications and training and understand the field. But meanwhile, using my street smarts as an as a manager and as an executive, having run organizations to say, what would my clients, who are, who are people whose shoes I had walked in, want out of this? And it just kind of went from there. And now you have, well, tell, tell us about your clientele. It's mostly CEOs, managers. 
Yes. So it's mostly CEOs and people in the C-suite. And I use the term CEO rather broadly. It can be a university president. It could be an executive director of a nonprofit or a managing director of a scientific uh, research institute. And of course, CEOs, everything from Fortune 20 uh, to startups with Series C funding. But essentially, it's people who find themselves in the highest positions of authority, where the buck stops with them, and where there is tremendous amount of pressure to, to find answers and find a path forward amid uncertainty, ambiguity, and change. And I'll, I'll come back to the pandemic, but long before the pandemic, what were the things people were most stressed about? What were the things they wanted you to help them with? Gosh, there's, there's so many things. Um, when we're talking about time, though, I would say the biggest stressors were around being torn in multiple different directions, particularly with global teams, the, the relentless travel schedule, the working across time zones, uh, and, and having teams work across time zones was, was huge. It was also, from a time perspective, the pace, the, the increasingly almost frenetic pace of change and technology and evolution uh, is something that that we have had to develop muscles to catch up with faster and faster. It's almost like you're taking jet lag on steroids when it comes to change lag and, and having to adjust to that so much. Uh, one of the things I'm, I'm doing right now, Linda, um, and I highly recommend people do, is I went back to read a book that was a hit 50 years ago. 50 years ago. Uh, it's called Future Shock. Okay. And the idea of future shock is kind of like we have culture shock. And his point was, is uh, the future is changing so fast, we're going to have to adjust to future shock. Um, and that was 50 years ago where he's talking about this frantic pace and people are going to move around more and people are going to have more temporary relationships, blah, blah, blah. And now, I mean, uh, we think 50 years ago and we think, oh, my gosh, you thought that was frantic? So there's huge future shock, if you will, now and the pressures that people were facing with the pandemic. Along with that future shock and that pace of change comes incredible uncertainty. People look above for answers, but there are no answers. It's not that they're holding back on sharing those answers with you. They are just as clueless as you are when it comes to what is it? How are we going to address this? Because there is no playbook for it. Well, I mean, no playbook for the pandemic either, right? People have been just trying to make it up as they went along. And obviously, this must have added to the stress over the last year. Yes, yes. Huge, huge added stress. And ironically, you know, much as travel added pressures before, well, I'm sure one of your questions is, well, how has that changed during the pandemic? People actually... Uh, miss a little bit of that, but what they miss most about the travel is the uninterrupted ring-fenced time they had on airplanes, planes, trains, and automobiles, if you would, to actually do some thinking work and to do work that is uh, uh, less conducive in our interrupt-driven, always-on messaging popping up ways of working. Uh, so that's another piece of pressure that has, that has shown up during the pandemic that adds to the challenges that we're facing in these times. That's kind of sad that that's what people miss about traveling, not interacting or going different places, the time on the airplane. 
Exactly. Exactly. Back to time. Okay, so let's talk about how we cope with this. You wrote a piece for the Harvard Business Review I thought was really interesting. You said people are unrealistic. They have magical thinking. What did you mean by that? I think we like to fantasize at work. And the thing we like to fantasize about very commonly is time and our relationship with time. That is specifically how much we can get done in how little time. And I'm not immune to this. I had a half-hour meeting canceled uh, this morning, and I thought, oh, great, I can put together some thoughts for Linda's podcast that's coming up in a couple of hours. I can write this white paper and submit this client proposal, which is absolutely hogwash, right? It took me half hour to just put together some thoughts for this podcast, which is what was coming up first. But it doesn't stop me from fantasizing about all these things that I can just fit into um, a time that isn't elastic. It is finite. So that's what I mean by magical thinking. Okay, so how do you cope with that? Like, what are the things you can tell yourself so you can be more realistic about what you can get done? (laughs) Well, I think it depends on your particular flavor of magical thinking. Um, So one flavor of magical thinking is about, um, this is just temporary. You know, once I get done with, I, I have to chair this conference and it's, that's why things are extra busy right now. But usually, you know, if you're the kinds of per, kind of person who's been asked to chair an international conference, you're also going to be asked to do a whole bunch of other things. And there is no time where it's going to get any better. This is, this is not symptomatic. It is systemic what is happening. So, um, so any, so I would say, Linda, it's it's to pick up on what you're saying. Is to pay attention to what you're telling yourself, and then be willing to bust the myths behind those. So if you're saying this will get better, this is just temporary. Look in the rearview mirror and say, well, has it has this truly been okay? I can fantasize about the future and indulge in magical thinking about the future, but let's look at past evidence. What does the past evidence say? Has this Was this temporary? No, sounds like for the last decade, I've been doing this and saying it's temporary. So I have the data to know that this is not temporary. Therefore, now, what can I do knowing that this is what it is? Either I've got to say, uh, say yes to less things, or I've got to manage my time or prioritize things in a different way. So that's one story we might tell ourselves. There's a number of others, and I can go into those if you Sure. Well, I mean, one of the ones I thought was intriguing, you said, without me, this work will be poor quality. I think that's a trap a lot of people fall into, that you know, if I don't do this, it won't get done, or it won't get done properly. Yes. And, and I wish I could say that that's only at work, but that's at home as well. <laughs> I say that at home all the time, and then I start to feel resentful. Because you know what? Also, there is a joy um, a, a weird sort of joy in being a martyr. <laughs> because then we feel more righteous. We can say, well, I'm the one who did it all. And we look at all that quantity where we're missing, uh, oh, there's a lot of light, but not a lot of heat. There's a lot of uh, motion, but a not, not a lot of movement, movement towards your purpose, towards what you're trying to achieve. So when I find myself saying that, And when I find my clients say that, you know what, actually, oftentimes it's true. It's true that it won't get done or it won't get done as well. 
But why? Because I've always been jumping in and doing it. So I've built dependence in the organization on myself and not built any capacity for anyone else to be able to do the work. That's a big leap for people, though, to get to that point where they feel like they can trust or it will get done. Yes, yes. And if I've never given them that space, how will they do it? And here's the trap, a trick to the trap is also it makes it extra tricky because then I say, oh, okay, I heard this podcast. I guess I should just let someone else do it. You know what's going to happen that first time you just let someone else do it? They're going to do a poor job <laughs> because they're not used to it. Their muscles are not built. So another trap we fall into when we say, okay, I guess I should let other people do it is a delegation trap where we think of it as an on-off switch as opposed to a dial. You cannot just hand it over to someone else first. You've got to bring them along. Have them ride in the car with you, so to speak, and see what you're doing, how you're navigating those potholes. Teach them, then coach them, and only then hand it, hand it over to them to do. You know, that's asking a commitment too, because that's a time commitment to coach people and train people. And what I've seen time and time again is busy people don't take the time to let somebody else help them. Exactly. And so you can pay it now or you can pay it later. So when you don't let, uh, mentor or coach someone else, you're right. It will take more time in the short term. That, that drive that you can do without navigating potholes very quickly, it, they're going to be in a pothole. They're gonna, you're going to pay extra for getting the car towed or repairing body damage. But over time, you have five people who can make that drive and not you. So on the one hand, if you're saying, I don't have time to do this uh, coaching and mentoring, then don't complain about I have too much on my plate. You can only do one or the other. So if you want to have less on your plate, the time to start is now. This does not now mean that you start uh, mentoring and coaching 50 people. Take some of your best performers and spend half hour a week coaching them because that will pay off in dividends. It'll be a force multiplier down the road once they know how to do those things well. Is there any difference between industries on this? Are any particularly bad or particularly good at dealing with this? I'm not sure. Uh, I would say... Yeah, it just occurred to me because I know some industries are better at training than others, right? There's more of a commitment. Some really aren't. No, I, yeah, and I, th I think certain organizations, with even within a sector, uh, have more training. That doesn't mean that they don't fall into these traps. What I think is different is when there is a different sort of commitment and culture set at the top. Mm -hmm. So what is the tolerance for experimentation, risk, mistakes at the top? And interestingly, some of the most high-risk um, products that are created where their life and death scenarios have the healthiest attitude towards a learning mindset because they know that if you don't experiment and learn through those mistakes in, in the training ground, you're going to make fatal mistakes with live ammo. I know one of the other things you mentioned is people think they're going to be rewarded for the work quickly. And this is one of the things that makes them want to take on more of it. You think that's a bit of a fallacy too? Absolutely. So I want to, I want to constantly prove that I've done something for you lately, because I believe that otherwise I'm going to fade away from that, from your radar, from recent memory, not get the promotion or the raise. Now, the problem is the more I take on 
the, the less I'm going to be able to do a good job with all of them. Up to a point, you will. And so that's the other problem is that I take it all on and I do a great job. I'm killing myself in the background, but then the system is rewarding me for that, which manager secretly does not like employees who say, oh, yeah, I worked all night on this. While publicly they're saying, well, we do want you to invest in your work-life balance. But the thing is, and I just finished reading a fantastic book called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, who busts holes in anybody, all those sleep warriors, right? Who say, oh, yeah, I get along. I get by just fine in three to four hours of sleep. And he's shown several scientifically proven ways that it doesn't last. And we, we tank our productivity by as much as 70%. Not only that, we make more mistakes and we become less ethical with less sleep and rest. And I was just reading that there's a link between lack of sleep and dementia later on. So if you need one more reason. You bet. Dementia, heart disease. So it's back to pay now or pay later. Which one are you going to do? And I'll share a story with you. In uh, 2011, so exactly 10 years ago, I found myself getting more tired, maybe as I was getting older. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, so I went to the doctors. They even took me to a sleep lab and did the sleep study. And he said, you know what? There's nothing wrong with you other than the fact that you've taken on too busy as a mantle and you're not sleeping enough. You need to sleep more. And I thought, oh my gosh, where am I going to find the time to sleep two more hours in a day? How am I going to get everything done? So I was genuinely worried about that. And I thought I would have to jettison 25% of my clients. Here's what happened in reality. Not only did I not have to jettison my clients, I actually got more done, better with less stress, with two hours more of sleep, because I could work at a faster pace when I wasn't exhausted. Interesting. And I didn't even realize I was as exhausted as I was till I got more sleep. Okay, so if someone's listening to this, and maybe they're not a CEO, maybe they're, you know, somewhere down the ladder, they're trying to cope in a very stressful time. And as they, as you said, you know, CEOs or others say, oh, we want you to have balance, but they may not really mean that. How do they get a hold of this? How do they manage their time with all of that? Yes. So I think the first thing is to set expectations about your time, not just with yourself, but with others. Um, That whole, that immediate thing, you know, let me just take it on because then people will like me and they'll reward me and they'll think I'm so great. So the first thing to think about is why am I saying yes? And what sort of time do I want to negotiate? So before I say yes, I might consider asking them, what is your time frame for this? And if someone says, well, it's tomorrow, you might be able to say, you know what? I actually have my deck full till tomorrow. Mm, I can do this next week. Is that reasonable? Or can I connect you with someone who might be able to do it by tomorrow? So, so one is finding out what the other person's time frame is. And often we take on a greater sense of urgency than the other person. That's one thing I would want anybody to take away. For example, last December, I had a super busy week, like many people do right before the holidays. And uh, somebody asked me if I could review their resume that week. Now, most people If they're also, that's another thing to think about. If they're not a subject matter expert, they think, oh, it's a quick thing. You know, how long? Can you spend 10 minutes and look at my resume? Well, it takes me about 90 minutes to look at somebody's resume in a a deep fashion and then multiple back and forths. So I said, you know, um, I'm slammed this week. I would love to support you. Please send it to me after this week. And I'm happy to do that. That was December 
of last year, guess what? I still don't have that resume. And I checked in with them. It's not because they were upset with me. They haven't yet put it together. So I could have taken it all on myself and burdened myself in that week from hell for nothing. Okay. So you take the pressure off yourself. You know, you, you're realistic about time. You mentor other people. Anything else that's that will help? Because I don't know that we're going into a period that's going to be any less stressful. We're going to come out of the pandemic, but I think there's going to be this huge rebuilding, new strategies. I don't know your feelings about this, but I, I don't see things changing in terms of demands anytime soon. Uh, I do see things changing, uh, changing for more demands. More, for more not for the better. <laughs> not for the better. In um, Because there's huge uncertainty in so many different ways, which in itself causes stress. So one more thing I would say is when you are providing a time estimate, add a buffer to it, especially to protect ourselves from our own magical, unrealistic thinking. So uh, often I get very excited and say, I'll get this to you by end of week. And I have learned to say, I'll get it to you, not by end of week, not by Monday morning, but by end of business on Monday. Okay. And that gives me a space if I couldn't get it done in the week. My goal is to still get as many things cleared off my deck by Friday so I can have a relaxing weekend. It gives me that space if I need it uh, through Monday. So general guideline there would be add a 20% buffer to whatever you think it's going to take you and declare that. You're only going to delight people if you get it to them ahead of time. And you know, in terms of magical thinking, what's the, the main thing you can do to make, make yourself realize it's not as simple as you think to get it all done? Because from all the things you're saying, it's almost like a mindset change, right? It is a mindset change. And the best, I would say, mindset change would be to say you already know that you have tons of experience that shows that. So I would say, look at your rear view mirror, look at your historical information. How long has it taken you to do things like this? You've never, uh, you know, I can say I've never prepared for a podcast in less than 20 minutes. So why am I thinking I'm going to do a podcast <laughs> and two other things in the 30 minutes I have? It's not going to happen. So, uh, so I would say, look backward and and abstract from there how long it's taken you and what themes and trends have happened. It's a little bit scary though, because if somebody has this huge list of things, they have the podcast and they have the written piece and they have the meeting later. If you can't do it in 15 minutes each, it won't get done. Or they feel like that. They feel like that because it doesn't get done. It doesn't get done. Uh, or it gets done in a way that is does more harm than good. So I think the question is, so it, you, you used a very interesting phrase, Linda, that I wrote down at the beginning of this, where, we, where you said, um, there's a lack of time to get everything done. And the mindset shift I would encourage is instead of thinking of time as a scarce resource, what if we thought about time as an abundant resource? And what if we said, instead of there's a lack of time to get everything done, what if I said there is enough time to get something done? Okay. And what is that something? What is that one thing today that I have to get done? 
Sabina, it's, it's a good way to think about it. Uh, we all have to, I think, perhaps move to this. As you say, it's a pretty uncertain year coming up and the stresses will only increase. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. This this is something that I got done today that I feel good about. So thank <laughs> you for thank you for inviting me to uh, share this with your listeners. That has been great. Sabina Nawaz is a global CEO coach, and she's also a keynote speaker and writer. She joined us from Vancouver. Well, that's it for today. If you'd like to learn more about Sabina and her work, please check out our show notes. You're going to find some links there. If you want to connect with me, I'm on Twitter at, at @relentlesseco. Now, if you did enjoy this episode, please take a moment, leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. We really help people to find us. It helps us to continue these discussions about the future of work. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks as always to Stoke the Audio for audio production. To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to the workandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at the workandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work in the Future podcast with Linda Nazareth is a relentless economics production.